It's a three-week series on marriage. What does marriage mean? And this is such an important issue. As I've said uh, every time, this issue affects our culture. This issue affects our society. And this issue is applicable, if I can get that word out, my tongue's a little sleepy this morning, is applicable to every one of us. Whether you are not yet married, okay, whether you're no longer married, or whether you're right there in the midst of the marriage journey, this truth is for you. Some of us have gone through it and you could successfully disciple other people. Some of us aren't there yet. We're, We're looking forward maybe to that day. And so we need to have some tools in our toolbox so that when that day comes, we're already prepared to to give God glory in this thing called marriage. Now, it's uh, this is six points that we've covered. We're going to cover in total, and we've already covered five. So today is a one point message. Ha! That's great. You will not get out early, though. All right. So. Uh, Let's just, uh, as a form of review, let's walk through what we have already discussed so that this can be fresh in our minds. Number one, we, we look to Scripture. We want to find the biblical understanding of marriage. And when we do, we find out that marriage is something that is defined by God. And as we looked at Genesis, Matthew, and Malachi, we see that marriage is a covenant, not a contract, that one of the parties can, can just say, ah, forget about it, and walk away. No, this is a covenant. It is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for life. Okay, we see that in the scriptures. The second thing we see is that marriage is ordained by God. He is the one who originates it. He not only defines it, he originates it. He blesses it. He's the one that causes it to be. Marriage is a special relationship, according to Genesis chapter 2, where two people, a man and a woman, become one. They become one relationally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. It's ordained, it's blessed by God. But see, the problem with with all these uh, biblical understandings is that we as a world, we try to twist and we try to turn it for our own benefit, our own selfish uh, motives and means. Which brings us to number three. Uh, Marriage brings completeness. You and I were never meant to live in this world alone. I'm not saying that everyone is meant to be married, okay, because God has given us uh, gifts. As a matter of fact, uh, The disciples, whenever Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 19, it's a crazy story. The uh, Pharisees come to Jesus trying to stump him, and they're trying to get Jesus hung up on marriage and divorce. And so they're trying to somehow get Jesus to make a mistake so they could accuse him of blasphemy or speaking outside of the will and the law of God. And Jesus gives them the perfect definition of marriage and the length of marriage for life, what God has brought together, that no one separate. And as he goes through all that, the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, wow, that's tough. Maybe it's best we shouldn't get married. You know what Jesus' response was? Well, if you don't have to, don't. Okay? I mean, wow. Marriage is a weighty, it is a big deal. It is not something that you and I can define or redefine. It's God himself who makes the definition. And if God is the one who originates it, puts the parameters and the boundaries around it, guess what? Everyone who goes into those perimeters, uh, those, those boundaries, God is going to bless. Because it's his thing. 
But when we go outside of those boundaries, that's when we're on our own. We're outside of the umbrella of God's blessing and protection. And so marriage brings completion. We were never, none of us were never uh, built to navigate this world alone. Yes, maybe not marriage, but community. Okay? We need together, we need one another, which of course brings us to number four. Marriage is the very foundation of family and community. All right? The very foundational human relationship, we see it from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, the foundational human relationship is the husband and wife relationship. Because of that husband and wife relationship, we are, we're able to have more relationships, okay? It began with one man and one woman, and because they got married, and because they procreated, now we have more community. And the community will not last unless we still have more marriage and procreation. So, marriage is that covenantal relationship that says this, I'm staying with you no matter what. For better or for worse. Listen, our society, our little town, okay, in Spartanburg County, we will either thrive or die on how we view the sanctity of marriage. Our state will either thrive or die depending on our view of the sanctity of marriage. Our nation We'll do the same. Then last week we talked about marriage number five is a picture to the world of sacrificial love. That's what the world... If the world... Those people who are outside of a relationship with Christ... Okay, They get all their information from media, TV, and other sources, and they don't get it from the, the, the gracious creator who made them, who loves them, and pursues that type of relationship with them. If they don't get it from him, they're going to get it from the world. And you know what it's going to leave them? It's going to leave them empty. I remember one time years ago, this was in the 80s. Huh? I got a memory, don't I? Uh, in the 80s, I remember Olivia Newton-John. You remember her? Olivia Newton-John? You're the one that I love. Okay, anyways, uh, that was freebie. Okay, (laughs) we'll cut that off the the video. Anyways, um, uh, Olivia Newton-John was interviewed about life and growing up and stuff. And she had parents that, that split up at an early age for her. And that split up was so heartbreaking for her, she never trusted in marriage. Now, eventually she did get married, but, but that was, that was her view of marriage is that it was a, it was a messed up thing and it was, it was not worth getting into. The world should not deal with marriages. You see, that's, that's what the culture is giving us today. Why go through the, the covenants? Why go through the commitments and just do your own thing? But God has something greater and better. And if you and I, if we as the church of Jesus Christ commit to a marriage that that is a picture to the world of sacrificial love, then they will begin to understand God. They'll get a pulse of eternity because of the way you treat your spouse. Which, in like 1 Corinthians, we read this last week, but 1 Corinthians 13 gives that, that, uh, that definition of love. And so, to, to put it uh, in my terms, in a world that seeks to be served, you and I are called to serve one another. That 
that's outside of this world. Okay? So a Christ-centered marriage should not be seen, according to 1 Corinthians 13, should not be seen as a place of envy. The marriage should not be seen as a place of boasting, of arrogance, of rudeness, and irritability. Your marriage is not to be seen as a place of rest, resentfulness. Of resentfulness. If that is a picture of your marriage, then one or the other, or both, are not showing sacrificial love, according to Jesus. Marriages should never be seen as insisting on my way. Instead, Jesus has a better way. He says instead, a marriage, according to 1 Corinthians 13, should be seen as a place of patience, of kindness, of rejoicing in truth, not wrongdoing. You desire to build each other up, not tear each other down. Marriage is about spouses that do this. In a covenant relationship, a spouse bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Do you want to know a picture of a sacrificial marriage? A, a marriage that is sacrificial love? It's a marriage that does not end. Now this brings us to point number six. And this is we're going to camp out today. Point number six. Remember I told you that the marriage, the definition, and what we're talking about, the biblical understanding of marriage, rubs raw against uh, our culture, uh, against what we hear on, on, on television, on radio, even at our workplace, at the water cooler, or in the trailer, if you load or unload, whatever the case may be. What you're going to be hearing now is is anti-culture. And I would say, I would go so far to say, there's people right here in this room. They're not going to like what's, what's going to be said. Again, as I said earlier, if it's biblical, your problem is with God. Because he's the definer, the originator, the blesser of all these things. So marriage, number six, marriage is a picture to the world, not only of sacrificial love, but let's go even deeper than that. It is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to post on Facebook a video that I'd love for you to see. It's three minutes long. It'll be on our uh, Buck Creek Baptist Church Facebook. Uh, please, if you, don't, if you don't know that, find it, like it, and then uh, and watch this video. It's absolutely beautiful describing... Um, the understanding of marriage and, and how it's a, a visual of the gospel of Christ. But let's just kind of walk through a picture, okay? Just kind of uh, imagine this for a moment. Marriage. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it's what brings us together today. I'm not going to. I just did. Okay. <laughs> for those who love that show. What was that movie called? Anybody? That's right. The Princess Bride. Okay. Listen to this. You heard this before? Man falls for a girl, right? Man falls for a girl. Then, of course, he courts her, dates her. And, of course, because this guy is so amazing and awesome, uh, she joyfully receives him, all right, into her heart, into to her love. And he, of course, shares his great affection for her, saying, I want you to be mine. And she receives even that. She says, yes. 
to such a beautiful request. You know what's next? The groom waits. Right? The groom waits. Waits for his bride. They're usually standing right here. Waiting for the bride. But when she enters, everything changes, right? It's like the lights change, the music changes, everything changes when those doors open and we see the bride. And then she enters, everyone is standing up. Some want to clap, some do clap. Some cry, some weep, some mourn because uh, she didn't pick them or because you're a parent and you're like, oh, I'm losing my baby. You know, whatever the case may be. But it is an awe-inspiring moment. Why? Because she enters and she is beautiful. She is in pure, spotless white. And as she comes down, she's presented to her groom. And while they are together, eyes to eyes, hands in hand, they vow to be exclusive. No others are to come between them. They say things like this, to have and to hold for better or for worse, forsaking all others for as long as we both shall live. Then they exchange gifts, they exchange rings, signs of this covenant promise that they make to each other. Right? And, and then, then after the ceremony is over, or sometimes before, they sign their names on a document making this vow of marriage legal. And then she takes on his name. They're now one. Everything that she has is his. Everything that he has is <laughs> Right? You've heard that said before, right? Whatever's mine is hers and whatever's hers is hers. You know, no, no, no. No, it, it, it's a joint effort here, okay? It's a joint effort. Everything she has is his and all that he has is hers. And then what do they do? They celebrate with a meal. They celebrate with a meal with the family gathered together. And then, soon after, they express their oneness physically. What has just happened? The two have become one. Marriage. I'm going to make a statement that's going to rub us raw, rubs me raw. My marriage is not ultimately about my marriage. But it's a symbol of a bigger, deeper purpose for my living and my being. Anybody ever read or watched the, the movie Romeo and Juliet? All right. If I were to ask some of y'all, Y'all would say, uh, or I'd say, well, what's the point of Romeo and Juliet? Many of us would say, oh, man, it's a tragic love story, man. It's all about a guy named Romeo, and it's all about a girl named Juliet. And they love each other, but they can't be together because of family strife, and it's horrible. So they uh, basically uh, elope or at least try to, and in the process, there's confusion that takes place, and they love each other so much, they eventually kill each other because they can't spend eternity together. 
To which I say, you've missed the point. You've missed the point of Romeo and Juliet. See, the point of Romeo and Juliet is you have two families that have bickered for years upon years and upon years. The story of Romeo and Juliet was a symptom of the bigger problem. The bigger problem was two families at war. And it took a major disaster for these families to come back together. Your marriage is not about your marriage. It is a symbol. It is a picture of something greater and bigger. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. To think that our ma- it's not our story. We're just part of a, a story within a story, a meta-narrative, so to speak. And listen to what the Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 31 and 32, and then we'll get more context later. Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, listen to what it says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul right there, the writer of of the book of Ephesians, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, where God gives that definition of marriage. All right, a man and a woman leaves father and mom, holds fast to his wife, clings to her, leaves and cleaves, and the two become one. But listen to the rest of this. This mystery is profound, but here's what I'm really talking about. I'm saying that it refers to what? And? And the church. Again, I said this earlier. Your marriage is not ultimately about your marriage, but it is a symbol of a bigger deeper purpose and that is Christ and his church picture this will you God has set his affection upon his people from eternity past not because of any good in her but because of his goodness that he wants to bestow towards her so what is what happens next Christ goes and he pursues his bride Right? Christ goes and pursues his bride. And here's how he pursues her. He gives his perfect life as a sacrifice in order to do what? In order to make her ready. In order to make her spotless and white and pure. A beautiful bride is what he does. Then, here it comes, then the bride is given to Christ when she receives him. And listen to this. This is so important. This relationship is exclusive. It's an exclusive relationship. In this, God makes a vow. And here's the beautiful vow that God says to his bride. I will never, ever leave you. I will never turn away from you. I will never forsake you. My love. And the church, their vow before God is I will forsake all other gods. Why? Because you are my beloved. I am yours. You, Jesus, are my one and only. 
then there's an exchange of gifts. At the moment that you receive Christ, He seals you with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is a guarantee of your forever relationship with Him and your eternal inheritance. What a gift that is. And then there's a legal declaration that is made. And that legal declaration is that you and I have been declared righteous by our union with Christ. Romans 3, 21-25 says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from that law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And listen to this. And are justified. Are made right. A point in time decision that you make to trust Christ. Is that very point in time that you become righteous. Declared righteous in the courts of heaven. And you are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption. Through the payment. That is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We were headed towards God's wrath and His disapproval. And Jesus comes and He pays that sin debt. He satisfies to propitiate means to satisfy the the wrath of God for us. So now in Christ, God sees us completely different. And then it is so cool. After we're declared righteous, guess what? Everything that he has is ours. Everything that he has. Christ Jesus, God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords. Everything that he has is ours. His righteousness, his love, his goodness. It's ours in Christ. But guess what else? Everything we have is His. Oh boy. What did I bring to the table? Sin, shame, my past. To which the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For my sake, for your sake, for our sake, God made Jesus. He made Him to become sin, who knew no sin. So he took on my junk. When Jesus went to that cross, he was absolutely perfect and absolutely righteous. But when he hung on that cross, he put my sin, your sin, all sin upon himself. And he paid the debt that I deserve when he died on that cross. That's not the end of the story. If that were the end of the story, thank you God for forgiving me of sin, but now my account is empty. But it doesn't end there. It goes on to say this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, when we're united with Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So all the good, all the great, all the wonderful, all the justice, all the kindness, all the goodness of God, the power of God has been placed on my account. So when, Jesus, when God the Father sees me, He sees His Son in me. And you know what? He loves it. He loves it. When you come, the very moment you come to Christ, I've got a great and precious promise for you. 
God will never love you more or less than he did at that moment. No matter what you do, no matter what you have done, his love for you is consistent. His his love is long-suffering. His love is steadfast. There's nothing I can do to make that go up because all my goodness, thank God Jesus paid for it. Rags. But he gave me all the fullness of Christ. And that's that right there is the litmus test of God's love for me. It's what Christ has done. So guess what? Everything we have is his and all that he has is ours. So guess what we do then? We celebrate with a meal. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded again and again and again of the fact that we are his church and he is our groom. He is our everything. But there's going to come a day when we'll have more than just uh, bread and wine, right? There's going to be a marriage supper coming up and I have a strong feeling there's going to be Oreo balls there. Okay, big fan of those. Okay, but that's just and, and no calories. Hopefully, no calories will count in heaven. All right, listen. Then here, this is it. This is so beautiful. We've celebrated with a meal, and then we become identified with Him. We become identi- We become one with Christ, and that very physical expression of our union with Christ is baptism. Romans 6 says that we have become united with Christ through baptism. So when we are baptized, you know what we're doing? We've already made that commitment the very moment we receive Christ. Just like a married couple. They make that commitment to receive Christ and they are saved. But we go through the baptismal waters just like a husband and wife go away on their honeymoon to tell the world, I am hers and she is mine. What a beautiful picture of the wedding. But it's still not it. Then we give him access to all of our possessions. At this point, you're going, no, I wish you wouldn't have said that, right? Hey, this is crazy. Everything that I have is Christ's. Everything that he has is mine. He's got a bigger paycheck than I do. And it's bigger than yours, okay? You are the one who comes out good on this deal, okay? It is awesome. Everything that you have is his. Some of you have done that already. Some of you have even made a commitment. We're talking about, you know, as a church, we've got a debt. And we're wanting to pay it off. And some of you, you know what you have done? You have given up things of great worth. Have you seen it on Facebook yet? Have you seen it in the, uh, in the gym? Some of y'all have said, you know what? It's ultimately not mine. I want to give this to Jesus because it's his anyway. That's, that's crazy. The world doesn't understand that. The world says, uh, my husband's got his own checking account and I got my own. Jesus says, it's all ours. And we got the good end of this deal. And it's not done yet. When you come to Christ, you take on his name. Yes, my birth certificate says Scott Allen Scrimpture, born July 22nd, 19 something something. And social security number is X, 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 X,
when you came to Christ, you became You became Christ follower. You became a disciple of Jesus Christ. You took on his name. Listen, what a joy it is to do that. Do you, have y'all ever said, you know, I want to receive Christ, but I'm not taking that person's name. It makes no sense. He gave his all for you and you give your all for him. What a beautiful picture of marriage. The two have become one. Let's read it again. Ephesians 5, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Bigger picture, greater picture. It's all about Christ and his church. So listen, for me, Scott Scrimshire, if my marriage is but a small illustration of a bigger picture, then I want to give as accurate a picture of Christ and his bride as possible. And if you love Jesus, you would want to do the same. Think about it. If you give as accurate a picture as possible of Christ in your marriage to a world that desperately needs a union with Christ, that can only draw people toward him. So what does that look like for me? What does that look like for my wife? What does it look like for you and your spouse? Back to Ephesians 5, let's begin at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Uh Uh-oh, we're getting a a story within a story, okay? This is is the context of what we're talking about. We we agreed with uh, verse 31 and 32, so let's, let's see the bigger picture here. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having uh, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands... Just as we just described Christ and what he does in, in loving sacrifice for the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as what? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, however, let each of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a mouthful. And boy, we out of time. (laughs) But we're going to finish anyway. All right. Listen, improperly, that is what we want to do. We want to display God in the most proper way. In that process, I have a role to play. You have a role to play in your life and in your marriage. 
This role was not assigned by culture, but Christ. Okay? I didn't have a say in this, and I'm glad I didn't. Because he knows what's best. And I am to submit to that. If I want to glorify God, I must do it his way. So this is what tells what, what the word of God tells me to do and to be. A godly husband will love her. Yeah, I think what we immediately try to do is we try to, to uh, get this whole passage and, sit and just push it all together into a simple phrase. And what a lot of people have done was they say, wives submit, husbands lead. That's not accurate. It's wives submit, husbands love. Now, part of that loving is loving leadership, sure. But there's a bigger picture again. Haven't you noticed that with God? He's after the heart. He's after the heart here. As a godly husband, I will love my wife. I will nourish and I will cherish my wife. How? How could I do that? How should I do that? It's pretty simple. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's all I'm to do. Just love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let the weight of that really sink in. You may have read this passage many times. I fear many people have read this passage uh, in an abusive situation uh, to try to get their rights and demands. We'll talk about that in a moment. A husband is to be a submissive servant of Christ. Someone who is humble, gentle, and faithfully putting his wife's welfare and her needs above, above his own. That's what Christ did. So if my wife asks me anything, here's my answer. My answer is always yes. Unless it is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical. Right? My answer is yes, unless it is not beneficial to my family's spiritual, relational, emotional, or physical development. And believe me, in order to understand whether that is or, not benef- is or is not beneficial, I need to have my ear close to Jesus' mouth. Because I don't even know what's good and bad. In and of myself, I don't know. Because in and of myself, it's going to be all about me. It's going to be all about what I want. It's going to be, kids don't bother me, Okay? It's going to be spouse, I need me time. It's going to be all those types of things that that take the focus of loving and honoring and cherishing and nourishing my wife and my family and it's focusing on me being king. That's not what the scriptures say here. Jesus didn't come to be reigning king. He, oh, he's coming back, and he is. Amen? He first came to be suffering servant. Men? That's us. The wife will respect and honor her own husband, submitting unto him as to the Lord, just as the church does. 
the church has been so uh, so honored and, and blessed to have a love like like Christ and a church. You know what the church wants to do? Wants to know, wants to grow in intimacy with Christ. Okay, wants to, to love him and wants to, to follow Christ's lead. So wives are to respect and honor her own husband, submitting him to him as to the Lord. And at this point, I've lost some of you, haven't I? <laughs> okay? Some of you look at this, and because of the culture that we live in, a culture that, that's so individualistic, a culture that, that everyone is identical, it's crazy, the politics and the psychology that we have going on in our world that just muddies these waters that have been so clear for centuries, have muddied the waters in the past few decades that we don't even know where we stand because, because we have listened more to the voice of the culture in the world than we have the Word of God. And listen, listen. I think what the culture tells us is that this old way, this complementary way, will always lead to an abuse culture. And my answer to this is, the biblical way, not only does it not lead to an abusive culture, it leads to exactly the opposite. Now, I want to be careful here. Some people use these verses in an unbiblical way. I'll give you that. And that's wrong and they're going to have to deal, as I mentioned last week, they're going to have to deal with a father who loves their son or daughter that you're abusing. That's bad news. And you need to be involved in a community, the church, who will lovingly encourage one another and hold each other accountable to have godly marriages where everything that we say and do to each other and to the world reflects the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to make this statement, and I believe it to be absolutely true. Does the, does the biblical way of marriage, the roles lead to an abuse culture? No, exactly the opposite. Because the biblical way says things like this. Colossians chapter 1. Listen, oh, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. In, in the, uh, the parallel passage to what we're reading in Ephesians, Colossians is very similar to the book of Ephesians. So they're kind of like commentaries on each other. Here's what Colossians 3 uh, verse 19 says. Husbands, love your wives. Now it talks about service as well, but listen to this. Listen to what it says. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Again, a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. If you think it leads to an abusive culture, then you are not following the word of God. It says, husbands, love your wife. Agape, sacrificially love. Her needs come before your own type of love. And do not be harsh to her. An abuse culture is harsh to her or him. Right? So the biblical understanding is the exact opposite of an abuse culture. You are to be the sweetest person to your wife than anyone ever has been or ever will be. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to get into some trouble here. 1 Peter 3, 7. After it talks about wives submitting, subjecting to the husbands, listen to what it says to the husbands. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. You know, oh... How many of you doing good at that? Okay. <laughs> Guys, we just don't get it. <laughs> okay. We're, we're, pretty thick. we're pretty thick in the skull. We don't get it. 
And I fear the reason we don't get it is because we don't try to get it. Again, we're not living the Christ life in our marriage. We're living the me life. The way culture has said to live. This verse says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Know why she acts and reacts. Know what makes her tick. Knows, know what brings her joy. And know what brings her down. And be the person to always lift her up. Live with her in an understanding way. Men, this is hard. And then it says, showing honor to the woman. Do you think, do you think abuse is honorable? Huh? Do you think, you think uh, uh, your wife under, your, under your, your thumb is honorable? Absolutely not. Live in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I know what culture says. I get that. We can deny the truth all we want. I just reading headlines of everything that's going on right now. This world is trying to make everyone identical. And in the process of making it identical, uh, we have police departments, we have fire departments, we have military that have once had very strict standards for men on a physical level have had to take them down. Do you think that's fair or not? That's up for you to argue with. But let's just, let's not argue with reality. Okay? There are women in this room right now that can beat me up. Okay? Probably most of you can. But on average, just to be honest, on average, the average guy and the average girl, they wrestle, the guy will win. Okay? That's just life. That has nothing to do with value, dignity, or worth. That just means that we're, here it comes, we're different. So I'm going to make a divisive statement right here. Men and women are of equal worth, of equal value and dignity before God. But we're not the same. We're not the same biologically. That's how we become one. We're not the same uh, emotionally. And you can't, you can't delineate because there, there's crossover. I get that. People tried so far to, to overdo this. Let's just be honest. We're different. Even from the chromosome level, we're different. But we are all of equal worth and value. We are all one in Christ. Peter Kreeft says it probably the best I've ever heard it. He said this. Women, you are superior to men at being women. And men are superior to women at being a man. Can't we rejoice in that? The world says no. The world tries to push women into a man's role and try to get men and push them into a women's role to where now we have such a confusion. The kids are being born and they don't know what to think. We need some sense in our life. But more than that, we need the gospel. God's beautiful design in marriage is to be a picture of that gospel. Christ, his love, and his sacrifice for the church. And the church to honor and to submit to Christ.
So let me ask you a question. Who comes first in marriage? Who comes first in marriage? God, sure. Okay, but I'm talking about a horizontal. Traditionally, it's this. From the time of the Romans, which is why this stuff is so crazy. From the time of the Romans and, and even, even in America in, in centuries gone by. Traditional, traditionally, it was a male domineering culture that used to say men are king. We get that. That, that's, that happened. But biblical marriage says the opposite. It says wives, you come first always. Her care should be the priority of the relationship. If only we had a visual of that. Oh yes, Christ. He did everything to be sure his bride was ready for eternity. Men, this means that you and I are to die to self daily. If you were at the marriage conference, and by the way, I just want to say, for those that helped with the marriage and the children's conference, are you kidding me? Okay, there were like 23, 24 couples that were here. And then we had a dozen of kids back there. And oh my goodness, it was amazing. The kids learned about worship. And, and the adults that were here, we learned about what it means to, to have the gospel played out in our marriage. So thank you for everyone. And it was because of your faithful giving that we're able to do these types of ministries. So thank you for being a part of it. Every one of y'all uh, who, who give and who came were a part of that. So thank you. And so listen, what, what we've learned and what we're learning today is that the wife does come first. The men, we need to die to ourselves. Here's what we need to be. Since we're different, can I just say this? Husbands, you are to be to your wife what she needs you to be. So how does a woman respond to such love? Follow your husband. Follow the loving leadership of your husband. Help him in his calling. Whatever that is. Support him. Your husband needs support. We are the ones who are lacking. That's why God says it's not good, Adam, for you to be alone. We need you to come alongside of us in our life. And women, please be to us what we need you to be in, in marriage. Okay? This isn't a blanket statement. This isn't every one woman submits to every man. Okay, This isn't that. All right, That's another weird theology that went on. No, no, no. This is speaking about the marriage culture. So that's what we need from each other. The problem, here's the problem. We have rebelled against God's complementarian design for one that satisfies our own desires and that leads us to abdicate our responsibility. Did you know? Listen, if, if the roles of men and women happened after the fall, Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, we'd kind of be in trouble because then we could blame it on sin, right? Right? And then Jesus coming back to redeem us. Now, now that we've been uh, saved, we no longer are bound to those roles. That's what some churches believe. But guess what? God in his infinite wisdom and beauty put together this picture of men and women in marriage and the roles they play before the fall. Adam was the one who had the privilege of naming uh, Eve. Adam was the one who was to teach her the, the will and the way of God. And he failed. Adam was the one that should have been between between her and the serpent. And he wasn't. He was beside her. 
But because of the fall, that didn't create the roles. The fall distorted the roles. To which now the men, we just want to play video games all day. We don't want to lead. We don't want to love. We don't want to sacrifice. We don't want to submit. And women are like, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so there's tension that has happened since the fall. But when we look to Christ and his relationship with the church, we see the beauty of these roles playing together. So if you fight for your will and your way, guess what? You just may get it. You may get that. But at what price? What will your will and your way produce? How about this? Confusion in the home. Kids have no idea what it means uh, to, to, to live biblically with a spouse. You're going to have a missed blessing of God because you're outside of his umbrella of protection and, and, and commandment keeping and obedience. And then, this is the harshest of all, if you choose your way instead of God, you're going to give a distorted witness to the world of the greatest picture of Christ and his church, the gospel in marriage. That's what we produce. So listen, the way that you relate to each other in marriage, publicly and privately, is a display of who or what you worship. If you're like, I know what God's word says, but you worship yourself. And you want to be king or queen of your life. But if you worship God, you say, you know what? I want my life in every context whether at work, at play, at home, at church. I want every part of my life to be whole, to be a life of integrity, to be a life that says, I am his and he is mine. If that's what we desire, guess what? That'll change everything. That will change our world. So the purpose of our marriage is ultimately, we went through six points, ultimately the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. If that is the focus of your marriage, this world will begin to see a more accurate picture of God so that the world can more accurately know who to call on for help in their own life and in their own relationships. Church, we have a job to do, but let's be honest. Some of us right now are bucking that. I get it. I'm a sinner too. How many of us have blown it in our relationship with God? Raise your hand. How many of us have blown it in our relationship with our spouses? Raise your hand. That's all of us. So if you think you've blown it again, like I said last week and the week before, join the club. And what we cling to is the precious promises of God according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. We thank God. We thank God that we have a high priest who is so able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he is one who, in every respect, has been tempted as you and I are, yet he's without sin. So because of that, we can go to our pure groom. Now, if you're a guy, I've heard this from Matt Chandler, it makes so much sense. If you're uncomfortable, guys, with the fact that you're the bride of Christ, guess what? The Bible has enough information to offend offend everyone because the women in this room who know Christ are considered sons of God. So deal with it, okay? That's who we are in Christ, okay? So listen. What we can do in our time of need, in our time of brokenness, we can run to the throne of God. And what are we going to receive? According to that verse, we receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. 
And what does God ask for you to do? According to 1 John, 1 John verse 8 and 9, he says, if we confess our sins, no matter where you are at, no matter how your marriage has been bent, broken, or just laying out to dry, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Listen, healing in your marriages begin with healing with your relationship with God. Okay? Any, any type of healing other than that is going to be always temporary. It's never going to be what God called it to be because he needs to be the center of your relationship. So two things as we close in our invitation. Singles, single again. We talked about six different points about a biblical understanding of marriage. I hope you get it. I hope you received it. And I hope that either one of two things happens in your life. Either if you have already committed to celibacy for the rest of your life, you know what? You have the privilege, the privilege of showing the width of God's love. Because you can love everybody as you share the gospel and as you live the life of faith in front of them. You have that privilege of doing that if you're celibate. If you're uh, single and you, you don't want to remain that way, you have six understandings, biblical understandings of marriage for you to start implementing into your life now. Okay? Seek the purity of Christ's cleansing upon your life so you can not only be that spotless bride in heaven, but you can also be, from this moment on, we've all made mistakes, but from this moment on, you can be someone prepared for that spouse, whoever that may be. You have the privilege of making that commitment today, even if you messed up this morning. That's how good our God is. For those